Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing that we can sing that song and that regardless of what we have done in life, regardless of how good we are as a Christian from a human perspective, how broken we how broken we come before you today, regardless of all of that, that we can sing that song that you are willing to use. In fact, you only use broken people, weak people, people in need of grace. And the truth of the gospel is that you are gracious to all of us. Father, I pray as we look at your word today, as we return once again to the story of redemption, we see what you have been doing for us throughout this entire book. Lord, I just, I pray that that we would better see the beauty of the redemptive story and that we would walk away from here just glorying once again in the gospel. In your name, amen. Well, you can once again turn to the gospel of John. We are continuing in our study of that book. And today, we officially begin the narrative section of the Gospel of John. Over the past several weeks, the first 18 verses of this book was the prologue where uh, John, the Gospel writer, was writing for us uh, a a description of who Jesus is from a theological standpoint, making sure that when we approach this book, when we approach Jesus, we know who he is. He's really telling us, "This, this is who my friend was, the Son of God. Today, as we are jumping in... As we begin the first narrative section, we are looking at um, uh, just, just beginning the story itself of who Jesus was. Now, just to kind of set us in context, we are looking at the first week of Jesus's ministry. John opens up by looking at um, Jesus's ministry in chronological order. One of the reasons for that is that he jumps over the birth narrative and John the Baptist narrative and even his childhood. Is, that's not necessary for us to necessarily know, uh, for us to, again, his, his, his thesis statement is, I want to tell you about Jesus so that you might believe in him. He starts immediately with his ministry. Also, just setting the context, it's been a long time in Jewish history since God has spoken to Israel. It's been a long time since anyone has seen any miraculous divine work. It's been 400 years, in fact, 400 years since the close of the Old Testament. Just think about four generations of people have gone by without hearing from God, without having a divine prophet, without having any divine interaction, any, uh, any angels coming to them, any special words. And so people have been just gotten on with their life. The religious system of Judaism has gone on. They have set up all of these these structures and systems, and they're going to follow Yahweh from the Old Testament, and they're going to uh, believe that he is faithful to his promises. And yet what we see today, as we jump into John 1, is that God once again speaks divinely to his people. So I want to read for us our passage. We're going to look at John 1, 19 through 28. And then we're going to look at some historical stuff that surrounds this and we'll get into the, to this passage. It says this, John 1, 19. This is the testimony of John. This is John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem and asked him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, 
I am not the Christ. They asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. And they said to him, then who are you? We need to give an answer to those who have sent us. Do you, what do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The question that we're going to be looking at this morning, the question that really sets this scene, the question that opens up the narrative to the gospel of John is, who are you? Really, the, the gospel of John is looking at that question as it relates to Jesus. But this first question is asked towards John the Baptist. Who are you? Why are you doing these things? In order for us to understand who John the Baptist is, I don't just want to look at what John has to say about it. I want to look at what the synoptic gospels have to say about who John is and remind us where this guy came from. Because as I said, for the past 400 years, there has been no divine activity on earth. We've been trust, they've been trusting what the Old Testament had said and the prophecies there, but God had not spoken to any man. And then all of a sudden, up pops John the Baptist and he starts doing really weird things near Jerusalem. And these people, these Jews, are asking a very legitimate question, who are you? So where does John the Baptist come from? I would invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke fills in those details for us. And I think John doesn't have to fill in those details because he knows that Luke's gospel is out there. And he fills in these details of where John the Baptist came from. Now, in order for us to, to kind of get that, I would essentially have to read the entire chapter of Luke 1. That would be a long time. I don't want to take that time. So allow me to kind of share with you the story of John the Baptist to remind everyone in the room. But I'm getting this from Luke chapter 1 starting in verse 5 and we'll end at the end of the chapter. John the Baptist was... His father, sorry, stop it. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was a priest. His job was to serve in the temple. He had been doing that all of his life. He was an old man. And as a priest, the thing that he was saddest about was that he did not have any children. He had no one to pass on his name, but he faithfully served the Lord. Now at this time what would happen with priests is they would do these rotations where they would serve on a rotational basis going up to the temple and they would serve in the temple and then once that rotation is done they would return home and they would live more normal lives in the sense of they wouldn't be serving in the temple on a daily basis. Well Zachariah was on one of these um, uh, he was, he was uh, scheduled to work in the, in the temple and it says that he drew a lot to go in and to uh, attend to the altar of incense. Now, just think back to Exodus, and as we're describing the tabernacle and temple, the altar of incense is inside the Holy of Holies. So he had to get really close to the holy place. just want to remind you that every step closer you get to the holy place, you get closer to the throne room of God. And so the priest understood God is on the other side of the veil while he is standing at the altar of incense with the veil right here with the, whole, with the holy of holies on the opposite side and he's ministering to the altar of incense. Now I am sure this is something that he had done before. He's an old man. He'd been a priest all of his life. He knows what he's doing. So this is in one sense a normal procedure that he would go through as he's serving in the 
temple. Well, this was not a normal day. And so as it says that he drew lots to serve that day, this is God's divine plan. Okay, Zechariah, you're going to be in the holy place. And it says as he's serving at the altar of incense, an angel, Gabriel, appears in the corner. Now mind you, this hasn't happened for 400 years. He's never seen this before. He's never known anyone who has seen this before. All of the stories about angels appearing were history in his mind. And so it says, he was afraid. And I go, yeah, you think? So an angel is there in the corner and this, and this angel goes, well, do not be afraid, which I find every time an angel shows up, they always have to say this. And every, every time I'm like, that doesn't work. They're always afraid. And he has a very specific message for him. Your wife will have a child. What's interesting about God's plan of redemption and the story of the Bible, he is, he's always using people that from a human perspective were barren, had barren wombs, or were late in their childbearing years to bring about these people who were going to be messengers for God. I mean, I'm thinking of Abraham and Sarah. Sarah was late in her years. Well, Zachariah, he was in the same uh, sense. His, his wife had a barren womb, and he laughed at God, or laughed at this angel, rather. That's impossible. That's not going to happen. We are well past that time in our life. We have resigned ourselves to the fact that we are going to be single people with no kids and my name is not going to continue on. Well, the angel goes, because you laughed, because you disbelieve, you are going to be silent, mute for all of the pregnancy. And so now consider Zechariah. He walked in to the, holy of, or to the holy place to attend to the altar of incense talking. It was just a regular Tuesday, if you will. And he walked out mute. I mean, imagine when he walks out and he immediately starts asking for, I don't know, pen, paper, parchment, whatever it is. I have, to, I have to tell you these things. And he goes back to his wife and he's scribbling down. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to have a son and I can't talk right now because I didn't believe it. And this is a sign that I should believe it. Well, nine months go by. And kind of flip through this chapter. We see in chapter one, we see that an angel went to Mary as well. And that, that um, you know, there, there was that divine uh, uh, conception there. And we get down to verse 57 of chapter one. And a child is born. Zachariah's son is born. Now, in this time period, if, if you bore a child and it was a son, and it was especially your first son, you, it, would, it would be assumed that the son would take on the father's name. Think about it. You have to carry on your family's history and lineage and name. And so everyone said, okay, Zachariah, what's his name? Is it going to be Zachariah Jr.? Zachariah picks up a piece of paper and goes, no, John. And look what it says in 61, 161. And they, and, and they said to her, well, none of your relatives are called by this name. I mean, it says, like, where's John coming from? Why, why are you picking John? There's no one in your family that you are honoring by calling him John. And he asked for a, and he, Zachariah, asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John, and all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke and blessed God. And fear came over all of the neighbors, and all of these things were talked about through all of the hill country. The fear that Zechariah had in the temple was now, was now given to all of his neighbors when they just experienced the man who was mute now just talked. And the very first thing he does is to have this song or prophecy that Zechariah has from 67 all the way to 79 about what this child is going to be. This is a special child. This is a child that was ordained by God. He has a job to do. 
And it says this, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. That's where John the Baptist comes from. That's where this guy who John, the gospel writer, just presents in, in, in the beginning of, of the narrative. And that's important. Because John was there for a purpose. John, in the biblical narrative of the Bible, fills a very particular role, plays a very particular role. He fulfills very particular passages of Scripture. And from the very beginning of his life, he had no choice. He was going to play this role. God divinely ordained Zechariah's son to be John the Baptist. That's John's background. Now let's return again to John chapter 1. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him again the question that's going to be filling our day. Who are you? Why are they asking John who he is? The, the answer to that is because John is doing some very unique things. Very odd things. Things that are causing the religious leaders of the day to scratch their head and go, what is going on? And the thing that he's doing, he's baptizing. Now, where did baptizing come from? Baptizing came on the scene during the intertestamental period of the Old and New Testament. So in the 400 years that closed Malachi to Matthew, baptism was put in process for a very specific person, purpose rather. And the purpose was proselyte baptism to bring in Gentiles into the community of faith, into the community of the Jews. This proselyte baptism was, was there to, uh, to uh, this proselyte baptism was not administered to Jews, but rather it was to non-Jews, Gentiles, who converted to Judaism. And what it spoke to them and to everyone around was you need to be bathed, you need to be cleansed, you need to be baptized in order to be received into the covenant community of Israel. Now for a moment, let's consider where John is doing his baptism. John is not in some Jewish, is not in some Gentile nation. John is not looking at those people who were brought in to the Jewish fold. John is speaking to Jews. John is going to Israel. John is on the outskirts of Jerusalem. If you're going to be a Jew, if, if you could say anyone is, you know, a native Jew, a Jewish individual, it's those who are in Jerusalem. So all of a sudden he's changing this baptism that... For hundreds of years, we're focused towards Gentiles. Now he's saying, Jews, you need to be baptized. Essentially what he's saying is, the Messiah is about to arrive and you are not ready. You, the people of Israel, are unclean. I mean, imagine he's essentially saying, just as unclean as those dogs that you consider Gentiles. Or as those Gentiles that you consider dogs. It's offensive. He's calling the Jews to submit to the ritual of cleansing. And there, that has been administered only to Gentiles in the past. There's a second thing that John is doing that's causing these religious leaders to scratch their heads. Up to this point, the proselyte baptism, those baptisms that would, would take place for the Gentiles to come into the, into the fold of, of Israel were not administered by anyone. They would baptize themselves. They would, understanding the ritual of cleansing, said, I need to enter the water and go down and come back up as a sign of needing to be cleansed. It's something that they would do to themselves. Here, John the Baptist, 
is administering the baptism. He's in the water with them. He is dunking them. He's going through these, these steps here. And so, again, these religious leaders are like, this looks very different than we have ever seen. Why is John, or rather, what gives John the authority to functionally baptize these people? And what gives John the authority to not look at Gentiles and say you have to be baptized, but at Jews? So these people, these religious leaders, as John 19 says, these Jews who are sitting up in their offices in Jerusalem, who are hearing about this man called John, realize we need to send somebody down there and figure out who in the world this dude is. Now, so they send a delegation down to the Jordan River to investigate who is this John the Baptist? Now, even before we get into what they asked him, I want to point out who they sent. They sent the priests and the Levites. Now, the sending party would be the Sanhedrin. That would be the religious office collective of of all of the Pharisees, of all of the, the religious leaders at this time. And it was largely controlled by the family of the high priest. And it was run by the Pharisees and the scribes. The priests and the Levites... A part of, the, as it relates to the Sanhedrin, were the working class members of the Sanhedrin. They were those individuals who were kind of the boots on the ground. So the delegation that they sent, John raised enough, um, he, he, he was stirring the pot enough that somebody needed to go ask him, but he wasn't stirring the pot enough that, you know, they'd send the president down there to figure out who this is. Essentially, it's like, hey, secretaries, hey, can you go figure out who this guy is? But the interesting part is that the high priests, or rather the priests and the Levites are also those individuals that were most interested and knowledgeable in the question of the rituals of purification. They were the boots on the ground who dealt with these things every day. And their question was very clear. Who are you? Not in relation to name or birthplace or place of employment. They knew that. They knew the history behind John the Baptist. They could go ask his family and friends about that. Rather, what they're asking is, what significance do you play in the biblical narrative and prophecy? What significance do you play in the religion that we have? Who are you and why are you doing this? Let's walk through the questions that they ask and answer. John obviously knew when they said, who are you, what they, they were really asking. Okay, what significance do you play in the biblical prophecy and history? And the first question you know, that he knows he's asking, are, are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? Are you the Christ? We know that that's how John interpreted it because that's how he immediately answered. He said he confessed, he did not deny, but confessed. The way that he's answering this is, is the most emphatic way that he could answer this question. Basically, it's saying is he didn't, he didn't try to beat around the bush. He didn't try to, uh, you know, uh, uh, put anything in shadows. He got right to the point. I am not the Christ. And so I can see these, this um, delegation of people that come down there like, well, check. Okay, he's not the Christ. So now, who are you? So they keep asking him questions. Well, uh, are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. Now, maybe you, you are wondering, why is Elijah significant? Why do they go from are you the Christ to Elijah? And that's because, again, these, this delegation understood, knew 
Old Testament prophecies. And they were questioning whether John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Micah 3, 1 and Micah 4, 5, and 6. Here's what Micah says. This is a prophecy. Just consider this is the last book of the Old Testament. The last words before it went silent for a while. For 400 years it says this in Micah 3, 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will set as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And he will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord." Now, you might go, okay, who is this messenger later on in Malachi? In fact, it's the last words in this book. Here's what it says. This is Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is just a side note about all of this. I appreciate that these Jews and Levites had their eye towards biblical history, that they were looking for the Messiah. Even though it had been 400 years of silence, they weren't doubting that God was going to be faithful to his promises. The thing that we've been trusting in from Genesis 3.15, that somebody is going to come to reconcile us and God. Somebody is going to come. The promised one is going to come. That seed is going to come. That's going to make all things new. They still knew. These Levites and scribes knew that that hadn't taken place yet. And they were asking, is this the one? And they had identified Micah is again promising us somebody is going to come. How does John answer? I'm not. Okay. How about the prophet? And I, I the way, the way, here's how I envision this going down. It's like this crowd that walks up to him. And you first have the first person speak. He's, he's the leader of all of it and goes, are you the Christ? He goes, no, I'm not the Christ. And they go, okay. And then somebody else goes, oh, oh, wait, are you Elijah? Because I think I memorized some verse back there. Yeah, are, are you Elijah? And he goes, no. They go back. And then somebody else goes, oh, ooh, I have one. Are you the prophet? Where does this one come from? The prophet, and notice he's saying the prophet, not a prophet. There's been many prophets. He's, he's going, are you the prophet? So what is he asking? He's asking if he's the prophet that was promised in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. Here's what it says then. Again, this is Moses speaking to Israel. It was a long time ago in their history. And yet they trust God remains faithful to his promises. So this is what Moses says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. Like me from among you. From your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him, and whatever, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he will speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. For centuries, 
the Jewish nation has been waiting for this final prophet. The prophet who is going to be like the great prophet Moses. The prophet Moses that God spoke to. Then they're waiting for somebody to come who is going to replicate Moses and give that level of, of um, interaction that Moses had with God. How does John the Baptist answer? No. Here's how our vision is going down. They went and took break. They grabbed lunch. What are we going to do? We thought we had them. We've asked all the questions that we could. And they know we can't go back empty-handed because the bosses are going to want to know who this joker is. And if I don't give him an answer, I could lose my job. So then they go, let's just go ask him. Look what he says. So they say, who are you? Because please, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? The funny thing is, they should have started with this, but they didn't. Maybe that's just a humor in it all. Here's what John says. I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. They were right to look back at the Old Testament and to figure out when John was prophesied about. They were right to say, I think you have a special significance here. I think God has foretold that you would be here. Let's find that in scripture. But they were looking in the wrong spots. You see, Malachi and Deuteronomy were pointed towards Christ. Those are images, those are shadows, those are analogy of Christ. But John goes, no, you're looking at the wrong analogy. You need to go to Isaiah. And so what he, where he quotes from is Isaiah 40. And if you will turn there, because we're going to read a section. Isaiah was written, Isaiah was announcing God's promised plan of grace and glory for his rebellious people. They, they were at the end of their time in the land. They had fallen off into idolatry. They were being overcome by captors. And God sends, God sends Elijah as a prophet, or Isaiah rather, as a prophet. And starting in chapter 40 and continuing all the way through the end of the book, it is one giant picture of how God is going to redeem his people. And here's how this picture starts. This is Isaiah 40, 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her welfare is dead and her iniquity uh, has, is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sin. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley should be lifted up, every mountain and hill should be low, and uneven ground should become level, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." The way that God begins this story of how he is going to redeem the people of Israel even from their exile and bring them back into a right relationship with him is to say a voice is going to come to make, to prepare the way of the Lord. Here's how D.A. Carson describes this. In the original context, 
The Old Testament prophet is calling for a metaphorical improvement of the road system in the desert to the east. The leveling of hills and valleys and the straightening of curves to accommodate the return of the covenant people from exile. But even in Isaiah, the end of the exile begins to serve as a model for the final return of the Lord, which is greater than any return to geographical Jerusalem. They understood that what was being described here was more than just a physical return to Jerusalem. In fact, this story is an analogy. This Isaiah story is an analogy of what is going to happen with us through Christ. Because what we can see started here in Isaiah 40 is this description. I'm going to send somebody who's going to prepare the way, make straight the way so that people can see the way back to Zion. Along the way, as, we're, as we read through Isaiah 40 through 66, you can do that this week or take a couple of weeks. It's a, it's a lot of chapters. Think about what we get into. Isaiah 53, the path back to Zion comes through a suffering servant. And think about the end. This section climaxes in a new heavens and new earth being described. This is just a side note. Turn to Luke 4. The first sermon that Jesus has in his earthly ministry takes place in his hometown of Nazareth. He had just come off of the 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He had just started his public ministries. He's coming on the scene and he goes to his hometown. He goes to to probably the very synagogue that he has sat in countless times. He knew these people. They knew him. And he comes into the synagogue on this day and he's offered to read the passage. Now again, it's some random passage. And the passage is Isaiah 61. It says this. This is 4.18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now here's how synagogue readings would normally go down. Some rabbi, some priest, some scribe, they would read a portion from the Old Testament and then they would close the book and then they would describe, they would, they would offer some um, description of that passage. They would preach on it, if you will. Well, this time Jesus was up to preach. So he read this passage, and he said he rolled up the scroll, then he gave it back, and the attendant sat down, and all of the eyes on the synagogue were on him, because it's normal, you read the passage, and then you describe it. So how is Jesus going to describe it? He starts, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) Bold statement. First sermon. It went over like a lead balloon. I'll just say that much. But he's describing that what Isaiah has been pointing to, what started in 40 with the voice crying out in the wilderness and the suffering servant in 53 and ending with the new heavens and new earth, what Isaiah was pointing to has come. John the Baptist understood this. 
when John the Baptist is in the wilderness and he is baptizing those people, preparing the way of the Lord, what he is preparing for God is to get the nation of Israel, these Jews, to understand that you may have all of the rituals, you may have all of the laws, you may have all of those traditions, but you are still unclean. You need something greater. So what John the Baptist is doing with his baptism is baptizing anyone recognizing that you need to be cleansed from your sins. And he is preparing them, as we're going to see as we keep reading, so that when Christ comes on the scene and says, you need to be cleansed from your sins and I'm the one who's going to cleanse you, they can understand that. So that's what he says. Who are you back in John 1? I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. I don't think that the priests and the Levites understood the significance of this voice. And I don't think that's the case because of the next question that they ask. Then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet... You see, if he would have said, I'm the Christ, I'm Elijah, or the prophet, then they would have went, oh, we need to get behind this baptism. Because it's one who speaks with authority. But they don't understand the significance that John the Baptist inherently has as the messenger of God, as the forerunner of the Messiah. And so how does John answer? I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, and even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John's answer is essentially this. By what authority? I have no authority. The authority that I have is the one who's coming after me. Now just some historical data, and it just, this is just because of how John lays it out. John the Baptist has already baptized Jesus. John, the gospel writer, doesn't describe that element. We're going to look at, at the byproduct of that next week when Jesus comes back from, from the uh, wilderness journey and he begins his ministry. But John the Baptist is already baptized. He's already seen the Lamb of God. He knows who this person is. So essentially when this delegation comes to him and goes, by what authority? John is kind of going, just wait till you meet this guy. It's that authority. But the level that he places Jesus at and the level that he places himself at would have been shocking to this delegation. Because when he says, the one who comes after me, I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. The imagery that he is using would not have been lost on them. In this period, there were servants in the house and as a servant, they would do things for their master. And it's a servant, so it's a lowly position. But even for a servant, there were jobs that the master could not ask their servants to do because it would have been beneath them. Even for slaves at this time, there would be jobs that would be beneath a slave that the master would not ask the slave to do because it was considered so degrading, so humiliating, so beneath a person that you would never ask somebody else to do that. And one of those chiefly is taking their sandals off because their feet would be so disgusting. It's like, listen... They're your feet. You take them off yourself. But here John is saying that I'm not even worthy to do the most degrading action to this person taking his sandal off. So here John's coming in. He's got a following. He has a name for himself. He's made a name for himself. He's come on the scene. And this delegation is going, who are you? John's saying the guy who's coming after me is so great that I am 
I would not be worthy to do a slave's task. This is the first day of Jesus' ministry. As as, As I pointed out, chapter 1, the rest of chapter 1 is going to look at the first week of Jesus' ministry. This is day one. Next week, we're going to look at day two, where Jesus comes on the scene. And this delegation, I think, stuck around because they still weren't satisfied. They're like, what's going on? So then Jesus comes up and goes, this is the guy I'm talking about. John the Baptist is a great picture for us. Because here's a man who was, had a, div, a divine calling on his life to do a very specific task, be the forerunner to the Messiah. And that could very easily go to his head. He could be sitting around with his friends as a kid and go, yeah, well, I had a divine conception because my parents were too old to have me. Or he go, well, God told me what I'm, I'm going to do for a job. Well, you might be a mere priest, but I'm going to be the messenger of God. He could very easily be puffed up. He could say, God, I want to sit at your right hand in heaven. But what we are going to see about John the Baptist throughout his ministry and interaction with Jesus is he understood himself in light of God. He understood that he was a mere servant of God, that he was a messenger of God, that he himself was a sinner who needed God, and he walked in that way to say, it's not about me, it's about him. So if John the Baptist were preaching this sermon this morning, I am sure that at this time he would say, stop talking about me already and look to Christ. And that's where we get to end this morning. We don't come in here because of John the Baptist and we don't come in here because of any faithful actions that he did or any faithful actions that you did. We come in here because of the faithfulness of Christ. So as we approach the communion table this morning, I, I want to end by preaching the gospel to you one more time because you need it. You need to be cleansed. Whether you're Gentile or whether you're a Jew, you need to be cleansed. John had that right. But the only way that you can be cleansed is not by the works of your own hands, is not by you setting out to strive to do better. It is by coming before the Lord and saying, I can't. But God is a gracious God, full of grace and truth. Who will be gracious to the sinner and offer hope and say, yeah, you can't do it, but I did it perfectly. My life, death, burial, and resurrection satisfied the need that God has. And if you place your faith in me, this is what Christ would say. If you place your faith in me, you can be saved. If you're here today and you're struggling, you have anxiety, you're wondering, how can I truly rest in Christ? The answer to that is turn your eyes to him and place your faith in him. As we take communion today, if if you don't, if you have yet to place your faith in Christ, if you're not a believer, if these things are, are new to you, we would ask that you just allow the elements to pass you by. We don't want them to confuse you. We don't take these elements so that we can be saved. We don't take these elements so that we can measure up once again. We take these elements so that we can be reminded of Christ's grace for us all.
Let's pray and we can take this together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of redemption that we can see each and every week. You are faithful to your promises, that you are gracious to sinners, and that you will accomplish what you set out to accomplish. Father, help us today to take our eyes off of the works of our own hands, to not be puffed up, puffed up with pride of all of the things that we have done, but rather look to you and humble ourselves, recognizing that none of us deserve the grace that we have been given. Help us to live in a humble manner. In your name, amen.